Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series to the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 60 and Under God's Banner. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first that your word is true. And that since your word is true, we believe it because it is the reliable, it is the trustworthy, it is without error, it is without the possibility of error, it is clear it is binding on our lives and so lord as we come both to this challenging and also very helpful psalm in psalm 60 lord we acknowledge first off that we need your help we need your help every nanosecond of every day we need your help in this moment as we now open your holy precious word that you would teach us and instruct us that we would be both built up and encouraged and confronted and uh, even corrected lord we thank you that your word does all of those things through the preaching of your word and so lord we we are just thankful that we can open your word that we can study it that we can discover great and wonderful things from your word so lord teach us your truth and help us to do as the psalmist said in psalm 119 11 and to hide the word more and more in our hearts so we thank you lord that your word is true we thank you for this time that you've given to us and pray lord that you would be pleased and honored through our study of your word in jesus name amen Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 60. Psalm 60 says this. (coughs) O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land a quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Psalm 60 is the last in the series of Psalms of David's psalms of deliverance that began in Psalm 52. The events referred to in the superscription, the description of the psalm, uh, relate to David's battles with his enemies that are recorded in 2 Samuel 8, 1-14. through 
Now, in reading the Samuel account, we gain the impression that David advanced from one victory to another with hardly any difficulty. But the actual experience of believers solemnly works this way. And Psalm 60 indicates that David experienced sharp reversals. Moreover, David understood his troubles to be caused by God's displeasure. And so Psalm 60 is a mictum of David for instruction, and it teaches us to be ready to handle setbacks in our spiritual lives by returning to the Lord in faith and regrouping under the banner of God's truth and God's grace. Now, Psalm 60's superscription, it notes that David wrote this prayer when he strove with Ariam Naharam and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, 2 Samuel 8, 1-14, it records this period of battle after telling how David became king over Israel in 2 Samuel 5, 1-5. He captured Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5, 6-16, and then he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion in 2 Samuel 6, 1-5. 2 Samuel 7 teaches us that David then desired to build a temple for the Lord, but God denied him that privilege. Instead of David's uh, building a house for God, God would build a house for David in part by defeating all of his enemies. And it was through the victories of 2 Samuel 8 that David's kingdom gained the peace that would enable his son Solomon to build the Lord's temple. Now, David's eastern battles were waged against the Armenians of Damascus and as far as Zobah along the Euphrates in what is now Iraq. It seems that while David's main force was so far away from Israel, the Edomites and the Moabites farther south took the opportunity to strike out and deliver a sharp defeat to David's uh, forces. And so to counter this threat, David sent his chief general, Joab, with a force strong enough to defeat the Edomites in the Valley of the Salt near the Dead Sea. When David had defeated Aram, he returned with the main Israelite force to mop up the enemy in 2 Samuel 8.13. And those who will read accounts of war from the safe distance of history may often think of minor defeats in the midst of a successful war as a small matter. But those who live through war are usually alarmed by such setbacks, in which this case probably involved the overrunning of Jewish cities and the loss of many Israelite lives. David understood these defeats as a divine rebuke. And in Psalm 60, verse 1, he cries out, Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. Now, Christians often wonder whether setbacks in life indicate the displeasure of God. Scripture's answer is that they sometimes may have this meaning. And the classic example is the defeat of Israel at Ai in the time of Joshua because of God's anger against the sin of Achan. Psalm 60 does not indicate that David himself had committed a great sin, the sin of Achan. And so it's possible that some of David's followers had transgressed against the Lord. And so, so easily happens in wartime. God's chastisement often happen in times of victory to remind us that the kingdom of God is a holy kingdom. Usually, however, if we've fallen under severe divine discipline, we will know what sin has caused it, a sin that we are openly committing in flagrant violation of God's word. Indeed, whenever scripture shows God as delivering temporal punishments against his people's sin, either they are aware of what they were doing or God soon makes their transgression crystal clear. 
And so if we're committing an obvious sin that God seems to be chastising, David Experience argues that we should repent of it immediately, confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness through the blood of Christ. This is why you often hear me talking about keeping short accounts before the Lord. That's what that means. It means that we should keep short accounts before the Lord. It means that we should be quick to repent, quick to say, Lord, uh, search me and, and know me as your word says and show me any grievous way within me, any way in which I have sinned against you. And then when the Lord by his spirit uh, shows us our sin, then we should confess it. And we should seek forgiveness through the blood of Christ. As 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so biblical teaching shows that as Charles Spurgeon writes, to be cast off by God is the worst calamity that can befall a man or a people. But the worst form of it is when a person is indifferent to it. That is, that we never take into account that God is displeased by our sin and that our our sin, our indwelling sin, even as Christians, displeases God. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, that God will discipline us because he loves us. He loves us enough like a father loves his son or daughter when, when he sees his son or his daughter uh, in air or walking in a grievous way or about to be harmed. What do they do? They warn the child. They warn the child. They tell the child, look, you're going in a way that is displeasing uh, to me. You're in disobedience. God has given us his word. He's given us examples like this in his word to show us. This is what's going to happen when you walk in your own power, when you walk in rebellion against me. Your fellowship is going to be disrupted. It's going to be hindered. And so this is a reminder. This is an encouragement that as Hebrews says, Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines those whom he loves. And he does it because he loves us. Like a parent loves their child enough to warn them, to encourage them, to teach them, to spend time with them. And so God, the Father, does so at an even greater level because he is our Father. We are adopted by him through the person and work of Christ. And so... It's out of love that he disciplines us, he corrects us, he walks with us, he desires us to grow, to be more conformed into the image of Christ. That's why we should keep short accounts. In fact, this is worth saying as well, that the way to stay out of your pastor's office, the way to stay out of a biblical counselor's office, the way to keep your marriage on the right track and your relationships healthy is to keep short accounts with the Lord. Because then, out of that, you're going to keep short accounts with other people. Now, David was not indifferent to the crisis of God's rejection, but lamented it in two analogies. First, David compared the disaster to an earthquake that undermines the security of everything he built. In Psalm 60, verse 2, he says, You have made the land to quake, you have torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. 
David fears that his realm could fall, and so he prays for God to have mercy and to repair the breach. And second, David feels that his kingdom is staggering like a man who has become drunk with wine, and he says this in verse 3. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Now, what David described often happens in the church. Years of faithful service are squandered by the sins of key leaders. Opportunities are lost because of a small number of divisive members. Doubt and confusion are sown by teachers of false doctrine. And when these and other failures occur, the key to our recovery will usually be how willing we are to confess our sins, to take steps to repair what's been damaged, and turn to the Lord in renewed faith in Him. And so David turned to the Lord in this moment of crisis. He was encouraged by the grace and the truth that offer salvation. And in verse 60, which is a key verse in this psalm, he says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Some translations render verse 4 as saying that God raised his banner to be displayed because of the truth. In this case, David is saying that God leads his people forward under the banner of truth. And the word used here for truth is also translated as bow and given the context of defeat. And following the ancient translations, i.e. the Septuagint, it is better to translate verse 4 as saying that God's banner is erected as a rally point for those thrown backwards by the enemy's arrows. Now, the president of a Salah, after verse 4, it suggests a pause. And so here God raises his banner to rally those who have suffered defeat. And during a latter calamity, Jeremiah spoke in similar terms in Jeremiah 4, 6, which says, raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety. Like the Union flag wagging and waving, I should say, not wagging, on, on Little Round Top during the Battle of Gettysburg, around which Joshua Chamberlain's 20th Marine Regiment took their stand against the onrushing Confederates, the banner of God's truth erects a fortress for those assailed by the world and by unbelief. And so by means of this banner, we learn that even in times when God seems to be rejecting his people and giving strength to their foes, he always provides a refuge for those who are faithful to him. And David states this, that many who fear you and who may thus flee from the enemy weapons to rally under God's banner. James Boyce points out that the banner is the gospel and says of the godly, their actions will show that they fear him and he will provide for them and he will defend them. Another military situation to which David's plight in Psalm 60 may be compared is that of the Allies in World War II, when the Germans launched the winter offensive known as the Battle of the Bulge. So shocking was the onslaught, breaking open huge rents in the Allied lines and sowing confusion among commanders that the German success made it seem that the war would be lost. At a vital point in the campaign, General George Patton summoned his chaplain to publish a special prayer for clear weather that would permit Allied air forces to cover his attack. A sudden change in weather suggests that God heard Patton's prayer so that the Allied bombers were able to support the American tanks in a victorious counter-assault. In his alarm, David similarly appealed to the Lord, reasoning that if God's anger had caused a disaster, only God's mercy could correct it. And so he called out to the Lord, asking in verse 5 that your beloved ones may be delivered, appealing to him to give salvation by a right hand and answer us as well in verse 5. 
David's prayer shows that even at our lowest point uh, are often our most valuable ones, where lessons are really learned at the heart level. Since then, we're moved to call out to the Lord in prayer. David knew that though God seemed to have rejected the Israelites, they remained his beloved ones and thus uh, had the privilege of calling on God for salvation. David acted on the hope that would have expressed by many later prophets. For example, Zechariah 1.3 says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will re- return to you. Through Jeremiah, God wrote to the exiles in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29.12, Pray to me and I will hear you. In Psalm 86.7, David himself declared, In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. And so we may wonder, given God's faithfulness and hearing our desperate prayers in times of crisis, why do we not pray so fervently all the time? Now, David spoke to the Lord in prayer, and then he sought God's answer in the word. He said, God has spoken in his holiness in verse 6 of Psalm 60. This statement may mean that God spoke from his holy place. That is the tabernacle in which God sent a message to the priests or by one of the prophets. And yet, it's more likely, however, that David is simply referring to God's statements that had previously been recorded in the scriptures. The Bible presents God as speaking in his holiness so that we should reverence his teaching as the very words of God himself. In Isaiah 55, 11, he speaks of my word that goes out from my mouth. And despite the efforts of liberal scholars to reduce the Bible, uh, the ancient uh, human, as human, ancient human documents, the scriptures themselves declare in Hebrews 1, 1, that God spoke by the prophets. In fact, the particular revelation spoken of in Psalm 60, 7 through 8, it refers to the land promises given by God in passages such as Genesis 15, 7 through 21, and Joshua 12 through 17. David referenced to Shechem, the, the vale of Succoth, Gilead, and Manasseh, mark out what God had described to Joshua as the land that I swore to their fathers to give them in Joshua 1.6. Succoth was Jacob's stopping place east of the Jordan when he returned from exile, and Shechem was a place where he settled just to the west of the Jordan. Gilead and Manasseh represented large territories east of the Eden that were threatened by the enemy advanced. And now remembering the promises that God attached to such places places and names, David is emboldened in his prayer. God spoke not only of the land he would defend, but also of the forces he would employ. When he said, Ephraim is my helmet, he said, referring to the largest and the most militarily powerful of Israel's tribes. Judah is my scepter, the Lord added, noting that the tribe from which David had been raised in Psalm 60 verse 7. And the Lord continued with the enemies that he would put to disgrace in Psalm 60, verse 8. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. So much for David's vaunted enemies who, by God's will, will be placed under base servitude. The Moabites would become domestic utensils. The Edomites would be like slaves assigned to wash their master's shoes. And the Philistines would become object of a mighty conquest. Derek Kidner comments, like a colossus, God dominated the scene. It is no longer a matter of rivals fighting for possession, but of the Lord of the manor parsing out his lands and employments exactly as it suits him. And so we can learn vital lessons from this psalm, Psalm 60. 
And the first lesson is this. Just as God reminded David of his promise to preserve the land for his people, Christians can be certain of the heritage of salvation that God has promised us in Christ alone, which no spiritual enemy will ever succeed in taking from us. In the great hymn of Ephesians 1, Paul praised God for every spiritual blessing with which God has blessed believers in Christ in Ephesians 1.3. And listening to these blessings, he first noted our sovereign election, saying this in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Paul added in Ephesians 1.5, Uh, our adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so that believers can rest secure in our status as God's beloved children with an inheritance and glory with Christ. Moreover, having come to faith in Christ, verse 7 of Ephesians 1 says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And finally, Christians are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.13, so that our indwelling by the third person of the Godhead serves as a down payment of the glory and the power of eternal life to come. And so the Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in Ephesians 1.14. And the point is, is that since God has declared these benefits to those who are in Christ through faith, believers should remember them in times of stress in order to strengthen our faith. And second, not only does God desire Christians to know the territory of salvation that he has secured for us in Christ, but he also wants our confidence to be strengthened through the promise of his word as David's confidence was. Our doubting hearts may fret that our salvation will evaporate like a vapor and Satan may seek to deceive us into doubting the security of what we hope for in Christ. But Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 4-5 that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And since we are bound to have our ups and downs on the pathway of salvation, as David did like him, we need to ground our faith in the truth of the word. James Boyce says, Biblical faith is not optimism as some think, nor is it a positive mental attitude worked up to help us through tough times. According to scripture, faith is believing the word of God and acting on the word, which is what David expressed in this psalm and what he apparently did in actuality. We know that David believed and even acted in faith because of the victory that his general Joab went on to achieve over the Edomites in the Valley of the Salt. Like David, believers of all kinds will triumph over Satan's sin and and death by trusting and acting on the teaching of the Word of God. Do you wish to grow in faith in Christ? Do you desire to be more steadfast in trials? Would you like to possess an antidote for the paralysis brought on by anxiety and fear? John Calvin said of David that the word of God was the chief ground upon which he placed his trust. If you will commit yourself to study, reading and studying the Bible and practicing trusting the promises of God, then you will experience a growing strength and peace amid all the troubles of the world. Now, the final verses of Psalm 60, they teach us one final lesson from which we make three valuable applications. The, lesson is that the first lesson is this, that only God can grant the victory to his people. And for this reason, our relation with God is always the vital factor to any equation as we're speaking about these things. In fact, in Psalm 60, verse 9, David considers the problem posed by Edom, saying, Who will bring me to this fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? 
Even after David's enemies were defeated in the Valley of Salt, they still possessed their mountain forts. And chief among these was Petra, a famously inaccessible and virtually impregnable stronghold. Petra can be approached only through a narrow cut between limestone cliffs that wind inward for two miles. In some places, the passage is so narrow that only two horses may be ridden abreast, and thus it can be defended by a small force of men. The, the city itself was honeycombed with caves and mountain passages from which the Edomites could defend themselves. David knew that the only way to break such a fortress was with God's mighty help. And yet it was not David's calling to conquer the inner Edomites' fortress, for God himself decreed the destruction of Edom only later when it assisted the Babylons in taking the Jews captive. Archaeologists state that in 551 BC, Petra was destroyed by a sudden earthquake, after which the city was never re-inhabited. Psalm 60 verse 12 says, With God we shall do valiantly. It was he who will tread down our foes. And the same principle holds true for our spiritual battles today. Whether they involve withstanding temptation, witnessing the, for the gospel, striving against worldly powers of evil in society, only God can give the victory. And so the first application and the sign that we really understand our dependence on the power of God is that we must earnestly commit ourselves to prayer. Day was particularly urgent in his prayer because it was God's displeasure that permitted the initial Edomite success. And so he prayed in verse, verses 10 through 11, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. And so knowing that Israel's chief problem was not the Edomite enemy, but our own sins, David prayed in repentance, asking God to forgive and to return to help his people. Daniel prayed the same way during the Israel's exile in Babylon. He said, We have sinned and done wrong. Now therefore, O our God, incline your ear and hear. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. In Daniel 9, 4 through 19. And as David and Daniel knew, since God alone can give the victory, we must appeal to his mercy in Christ and then humbly seek the powerful aid that we need because of the Lord. In fact, early on in his Christian life, the famous missionary Hudson Taylor undertook to make a trial of God's faithfulness in prayer. And when his employer forgot to pay him, Taylor said nothing but only prayed. And then the employer remembered his mistake and made good on his debt to the young believer. Taylor later admitted that he had been immature in many of his prayer tests by neglecting legitimate means of helping himself. And yet the confidence that he gained in God's grace to answer prayer would shape the rest of his ministry. Believing that God had called him to take the gospel to China, Hudson Taylor faced tremendous opposition. One minister asked him how he expected to get to so distant a place with no money. It seemed improbable, Taylor replied, that I should need to do as the twelve and the seventy had done in Judea, go without purse or script, relying on him who sent me to supply all my need. Unable to find a suitable missionary society to support him, Taylor concluded, so God and God alone is my hope, and I need no other. In the face of every insuperable obstacle, Taylor committed himself to prayer and relied on God to make possible what God had called him to do. And so history records that Hudson Taylor went to China and found the China Inland Mission, a great missionary society that succeeded through many trials in reaching millions of people with the gospel of Christ. Taylor was a man of vision, a man of courage and love, but above all, he was a man who experienced God's faithfulness in answering prayer. 
Howard Taylor said of his missionary father that for 40 years the sun never rose over China without God's finding Hudson Taylor on his knees. Here was a proof of his belief that only God could give the victory to his servants. A second application and another proof that we realize our dependence on God is that they therefore must not rely on worldly methods or human power. Looking to the east, to the stronghold of Edom, David cried out, Vain is the salvation of man in Psalm 60, verse 11. And as we stand against the fortress of unbelief and the essential opposition to God in our present age, our success will largely depend on, on our willingness to do God's work in God's way. God's way is through prayer and through the word. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And just as David grounded his faith on the holy word of God, we must wage spiritual battle through prayer and by wielding the word, the sword of the spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17 through 18, to cast down opposition to Christ through his gospel. And today we need to be clear that there are those who would suggest that there is some other means to engage this war, that we must deliver people from their demons but that is a false gospel. That is a false gospel. It adds to the gospel. The gospel tells us that we must repent and believe, not that we must cast out demons, but that God uses the means of his preached word to bring sinners to faith because Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are not authorized to add anything to the gospel. We are to preach the gospel. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are ambassadors. We are to make an appeal to all men, whether God opens their eyes or not, to be reconciled to God. Uh, in his very first message, his very first sermon in Luke 4, in which Jesus opened the scroll in, uh, of, of Isaiah 61, the main message, the main heart of that sermon that Jesus gave was that he had come to set the captives free. You see, the gospel is enough. We are to be faithful to the gospel. And then God uses the faithful teaching and preaching and evangelizing and discipling the gospel to make disciples who make disciples of the nations. That means you're Christian. You must be faithful to the gospel. Wherever God has placed you, you must be faithful to share the gospel and to demonstrate the gospel. Not only with your words, but in your life. That's why Paul told Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine. He didn't separate doctrine, which is teaching, coming from the word, from his life. Rather, doctrine and life are, feel, are wedded together. Put another way, sound doctrine feels sound living. It's not first our, our, the practical considerations, the, the one, two, three step of our Christian life that matters to God. What God cares is that we believe him, that we take him at his word. That, that, and because of that, that we do ministry in God's way, under God's power, for God's glory. 
You would think that that wouldn't be a revolutionary message or even a controversial message in our day. And yet so many of you would be so shocked because there are so many other messages. There, there is the woke agenda. There is the social gospel agenda. There is the Enneagram, the New Age agenda, infiltrating the church. There is the gay Christian movement. There is the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, there, there is the, the demon slayer, the deliverance ministry. And all, what all of these things do, movements do, is they all undermine the authority of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word. And when you undermine the authority of God's word and you undermine the sufficiency of God's word, you undermine the sufficiency of Christ himself in the word. And this is not just in those movements. You know, we could talk about the seeker-sensitive movement. We, we could talk about so many of these other movements. The, and all of them are pray, all of these are just a movement to place a method over the, the original means by which God opens eyes and ears and makes disciples through the preaching of his word, through the reading and the studying of God's word. And, and, and just one more thing, just, just go look at Evangelical Christian Publishers Association top books that are sold every year. Look at one of the, the most sold books in, in recent times, Jesus Calling, which, is, which uses, was written uh, through a process called automatic writing. As Christians, we believe, for example, in the inspiration of the Bible, that, that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy and that, that God used the personality of the writers and yet he inspired the writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down the word of God. And yet in automatic writing, what one does is they yield themselves to Satan, to be a vessel, to say whatever Satan wants to say. That is lies from the pit of hell because Satan is a deceiver. And this is exactly what we're seeing. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, what people want, instead of what we're called to do is to preach the word, what people want, Paul says in the next verse, is they want to have their ears tickled. They want to hear a nice, little, comfortable message. I can tell you as somebody who fills pulpits, there I would, I would never compromise on the word. But I can understand the temptation in the moment to say something really outlandish so that you know they really remember you, to say something so that you could gain a following and you could get more people to like your stuff. But I would never do that. And the reason is, is I fear God too much because I know what James 3.1 says, that teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. This is why we're camping here for just a few minutes to say the example of Hudson Taylor is significant in our day. We have the word. It's enough. It tells us of Christ. It tells us of the character of God. It tells us of, of the mission that, that the church is to be on and preaching the gospel and being faithful to Christ. Wherever God has placed us, 
You see, we gather to scatter. We gather on the Lord's Day and we scatter during the week to our homes, to our vacation, if you're a single mom, to care for your kids, and on and on and on. Or married, a married wife, and you, you're a stay-at-home mom, and you're caring for your children and teaching them. That is a job. That is a ministry in and of itself. That's not an easy job. But no matter what your job is, no matter what your vocation is, as you scatter on the Lord's Day, be faithful to preach the gospel. Be faithful to the word. Be faithful in whatever responsibility, whatever role that God has given you, whether you're a pastor or a layman, you're a blogger, you're an author, you're a podcaster, whatever it is. We must prize the word above all. There's no other way to know God other than as he's revealed himself in the word. And so we must, we must prioritize the reading and the study of God's word. We must prize and spend time saturating our prayers in the word that we are reading and studying and meditating and memorizing. Now, Psalm 60's final application is that believers should live courageously under the banner that God has given to us. David says this in Psalm 60, 12. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If David spoke of God's banner in general terms, New Testament Christians know that God's banner for salvation is his son, Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah the prophet foretold using a familiar designation for the promised Messiah in Isaiah 11.10, which says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. In a sermon on Psalm 60, Charles Spurgeon set forth four ways in which Christ is the banner for his people, enabling us to rally from enemy arrows, and gain boldness in the fight of faith. First, Spurgeon pointed out that when a banner is lifted up in battle, it is displayed as the point of union. Likewise, all true Christians draw together in fellowship and in our mission when we come together in the person and work of Christ. Apart from a shared fellowship in Christ, we are divided and even easily scattered, but when Christ is our banner, we are united in strength. And it is for this reason that Christ and his gospel are constantly under attack, just as enemies always direct their follies to where the banner is lifted high. Today, the enemies of Christianity assail the veracity of Christ's miracles, the authenticity of his teaching, the atoning purpose of his sacrificial death, and the sufficiency of faith in the gospel. We must rally around these very same truths, which God will never allow, so that we gain strength and boldness in his cause. Second, the banner of Christ is a symbol of his church's defiance. Charles Spurgeon said, as soon as ever the banner is lifted up, it it is, as it were, flipped uh, in the face of the foe. It seems to say to him, do your worst, come on. We are not afraid of you, we defy you. And so when Christ is preached, there is a defiance given to the enemies of the Lord, Spurgeon says. Drawing near to Jesus, we remember that he said he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in Matthew 6, 18. And third, Spurgeon described Christ, our banner, as the emblem of victory for the people of God. Hearing Christ speak forgiveness from the Christ, from the cross, I mean, seeing Christ rise from the grave, 
Having conquered the bands of death, knowing Christ ascended and is reigning above at God's right hand, the Christian warrior rejoices that the battle in which we fight has already been won, and that the worst that can possibly happen to us is that people tell us we are liars. And even in there, we have the victory because we have God's word, which is truth. John 16.33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. With Christ reigning, Paul reminds us that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans 8, 38-39. Fourth, Christ as our banner is ever a source of consolation to the wounded. And when the arrows have pierced our armor or the strength of our arms have, have been spent, the Christian sees Christ's banner still waving and rejoices in heart, knowing that Christ by his word will minister to our grieving and wearied hearts. So how does one gain admission beneath Christ's banner to be the victor over sin, the world, and ultimately even death? David states in Psalm 64, You have set up a banner for those who fear you. To fear God is to confess our sins and to appeal to Christ for mercy. Fearing God means submitting to his royal will and standing ready to obey the commands of his word. Fearing God is the outward evidence of an inward saving grace that consists of trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. By this faith, worked out through the fear of the Lord, anyone might find room beneath the banner of Christ and his gospel, which always waves in the mighty wind of the sovereign Holy Spirit. Under that banner, however angrily God may be acting in judgment because of sin, and no matter how furiously the volleys of enemy arrows may be flying all around us, we will be saved. Reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, our banner, the Lord will teach us to say in Psalm 60:12, With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are as Exodus uh, tells us you are a warrior, that you you go to war with your enemies because you are a just, you are a holy God. And what we see in the cross is we see your justice, we see your holiness, and we see your love meet perfectly in the in the sacrificial death of Christ in our place. As you said in John 19.30, it is finished. And you tore the veil from the top to the bottom that separated us eternally from the presence of God. And now, because of the death of Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. And now, even now, as children of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been summoned to come before the throne of grace to find, as Hebrews 4.15 says, to find grace in time of need. Oh Lord, how we need that grace. We need that grace for anxiety. We need that grace for our fear. We need, we need, that, we need that grace for our doubt. We, we need that grace for our struggles. We need that grace Lord, for our, our churches to stand strong in the face of great challenges ahead. And yet, Lord, you just call us to be faithful to your word, which reveals your son. So, Lord, may we be reminded even today 
that it is your ways that are higher than all, that you are a holy and a just and a perfect and a true and reliable and loving and holy just God. And what you call us to do is to be faithful, to faithfully preach and teach your word and to obey you by your grace through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and to trust, Lord, that you will open eyes, that you will open ears, that you will carry forth the gospel that opens even the ears of our opponents, of those who ultimately deny you. So, Lord, help us to be faithful no matter where you've placed us. Help us to be faithful to declare your message and help us. Help us, Lord, to call on you. Help us to beseech your throne of grace. Help us to, if, if we have erred in any way, if any grievous way be in us, Lord, may we be quick to repent and turn and confess that sin to you and find forgiveness. As, even as 1 John 1, 9 says, but also as Psalm 51 tells us, Lord, renew a bright spirit within us. May our hearts testify and sing aloud as the psalmist often does of the, of the covenant love of our God, of our King, of our Savior, of our Lord. Oh Lord, help us. Help us. Thank you, Lord, that your grace superabounds. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before your throne and we can find grace because of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that even now, that you would open eyes and ears to hear the truth of the gospel, that you might draw them and that they might be saved. And I pray, Lord, for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be bold and that we would be courageous and that, that we would stand on the word of the God without apology, without compromise, and, and yet speaking the truth in love, correcting our opponents with gentleness. Help us to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Help us to grow, Lord, in, in quickly repenting and keeping short accounts with God and men. And we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 